Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You that You have spoken to us in Your Word, that You have given it to us to be a lamp unto our feet. We ask that as Your Word is preached, that Your Spirit, He would be here, He would be active, and that He would indeed impart life to us. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. So here we are at the very end of the book of Colossians. And we're left with a list of people, like is often Paul's case here at the, at the end of one of his letters, who have given their life in, in service to the Gospel and in partnership with Paul. Uh, consider again what Joseph just read for us. Verse 7, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. There's literally a team of people traveling with Paul all around um, the Roman Empire, planting churches, dealing with the drama of false teaching and the interpersonal dramas that often come uh, in churches, resolving conflicts, dealing with, with sins and broken families, and all of the uh, baggage that that in- entails. And we would be wise to ask ourselves the question, what motivates anyone to sign up for that? Paul himself is an interesting case study. This is a man who was literally climbing the ladder of Jewish leadership. If there was a a list of the top 25 people to watch as risers, Paul would have been on that list. He had the the best pedigree and training you'd expect from a rising Pharisee. Moreover, he was making a name for himself in the book of Acts for persecuting the church. But all of that changed when Paul encountered Christ on the road to Damascus. And Paul's ministry went from one that was climbing a ladder to one that was really, really difficult. Wherever Paul went, two things happened. Wherever he went, people were saved and people hated Paul. Wherever he went, that was the common theme. People heard the gospel, they got saved, and then the rest of the people just pretty much didn't want him alive. He was cast out by his own people, the Jews. They sought his destruction. They eventually had him arrested. They even plotted to kill him. And despite this, in the book of Romans, Paul says that he would give up his own salvation if the Jewish nation would be saved. Despite everything they had done to him. We can deduce from there that there's a very proper and godly love that you can have for your own people, for your nation, to seek their good. That's not idolatry. That's a good thing. To an extent, nationalism is a good thing. And it's certainly better than the alternative, globalism. Paul's life was marked by conflict as he traveled around the Roman Empire, which itself was a dangerous thing to do. It's not like you could just hop on an interstate and be pretty sure you were going to make it there safely. He would arrive in a town, he would preach in the synagogue, and then he would eventually get kicked out of that synagogue. He was imprisoned, beaten by governing officials, had to flee for his life. A mob in Ephesus sought to kill him because his gospel preaching was costing them money. And you never want to threaten people's money because then they really get upset. Everywhere he went, the world and life was turned upside down. You would think that Paul found some rest and encouragement and respite within the church, but he didn't. He constantly had to instruct. He constantly had to rebuke. He constantly had to correct. He constantly had to endure insults from within the church. If 
you read Paul's letters, you see that many times he had to defend himself against false accusations. People were always saying, Paul was actually doing this. And Paul's like, no, I'm not. I don't know where you got that idea. This was his life. And anyone who followed him and traveled with him got to bear that burden with him. And so you have this list of people here. Tychus, Anismus, Aristarchus, Mark, Justice, Epaphras, and Luke. And these men signed up for it. They said, I see what you're going through, Paul. I want some of that. We get to the end of these letters, and we often just want to glance over them. Lists of names and greetings, but we should pause and reflect because they remind us of several important things. That Paul and his comrades were not mythical people in some random story that was made up. They were real people who had the same struggles and sometimes even worse struggles than we have. Real people who faced real opposition but persevered. And again, we have to ask ourselves the question, what drove these people and what kept them in the midst of that fire? Why did they not just give up and go home? Some of the answers, faith, grace, truth, the message of the gospel, as summarized here in Galatians. And that is what we're going to do here today. At the end of the book of Colossians, it is a, a good thing to do is to stop, step back and reflect on the whole message of this book. You see, when Paul wrote this letter and, and the guy carried it into the church of Ephesus, what they would do is they would gather together on Sunday and this guy would stand in the front and he would read the entire letter in the whole. And that people would consider the whole message together. Now, I'm someone, as you know, as you've been here for a while, I believe in verse-by-verse verse preaching through the Bible. I think that's how we best hear from the Lord. But it's also good from time to time to take that step back so that we don't just see one or two verses in isolation. So if you have your Bibles, open them up. Flip from Colossians 4 back to Colossians 1. We are going to go through the entire book of Colossians here and consider it as a whole. And for that reason, we should be done around 3 or 4 o'clock. <laughs> and, then, and then we'll get uh, to the baptisms after that. No, this is a, a mile-high view here of the book of Colossians. The message starts with the book's first major section, 1, 1 through 14. And it, it dwells on, it focuses on the sovereignty of God and how that has been displayed within the life of those at the church of Colossae. Again, this message that Paul is writing here in Colossians is the message that makes him do what he does. That gives him strength to keep going. That is drawing more people into it. And the opening section recounts the work of God and that, what He has done in that local church. This local church is just one manifestation of God's plan to save the world. And it manifests itself in many local churches, including this one. And Paul recounts how the gospel of truth is bearing fruit throughout the entire world. Just as Colossae is a manifestation of God's power to save, so is Christ's Bible church. Just one manifestation of God's power to save. And we're going to see some of that after the service with the baptisms. God is at work. Aslan is on the move, as the saying goes. God is always doing something. And the church displays that reality in tangible ways. 
God is the one who sent Christ. It is God who transforms us. It is God who saves. It is His power at work. And that is the good news that everything else is built upon. It is not by our strength that we are saved. It is not by our sovereignty, our autonomy, our decisions that we are saved. It is that God has chosen to save. And He has made a way for that to happen. Look at verses 12-14 through in chapter 1. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness. He has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. We have left the kingdom of darkness. We have moved into the kingdom of the Son because God has done that. God has taken you from one spot just like He did with Paul on the road to Damascus. He says, here, you're going this way. Now you're going to go this way. And if he doesn't do that, well then, we're in trouble. The plan of God centers on the person and the work of Christ. That God's power is most clearly perceived in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. He is, after all, the God-man. And so we must pause and consider Christ the Lord and Christ the Savior. The one who rules over everything and the one who dies to save people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And so Paul says this reality, the sovereignty of God, His plan, and His power in Christ is at work in you. Therefore, you can live a life, as verse 10 says, that is fully pleasing to Him. Not a perfect life, but you can live a life as a Christian, and indeed, this should be more of the norm, that can be described as generally faithful. Why? Because God is at work within you. God has done something great in you and God is sustaining you and transforming you. It is a call to live your life faithfully, not to live your life perfectly. For Christ is your perfection. You are not. How do we do this? Well, literally Paul works that out. How to live a life that is fully pleasing to God in the rest of his letter. That's, that's why he's, he's writing And that moves us into the next major section of the book, 15 through 23 in chapter 1. The preeminent work of Christ. Paul moves seamlessly into what is the burning center of the letter who Christ is and what he has done. That we have to get this Jesus right, otherwise, everything just falls apart. And so we have this famous first century hymn or a confession of faith. If you want to know what the first century church believed about Jesus, you have a summary of it right here in verses 15 through 20. This is what drives the living faith. It's what secures our salvation. And it can be summarized in a few words. And that is, Christ is over all. Christ is King over all. Look at verses 15 through 20. Speaking of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Christ is the center of our faith. And getting Him right is of paramount importance. 
I've summarized this passage to you again and again over these 17 weeks that we've been going through Colossians uh, because it is really the heart, the center of everything Paul is teaching. It is why Paul is willing to suffer ridicule. It is why he was willing to completely change the direction of his life because he met the real Jesus. Christ is the image of God. The fullness of God dwells in him bodily because he is God in the flesh. He is the firstborn of creation. That is not referencing that there was a time when he did not exist, but that the firstborn is a rank. Right? The firstborn inherits everything. He gets everything. He has authority over everything. Sorry to all the second and thirdborns in the room. But the firstborn is a rank. He made everything. He holds all things together. And it says, Paul says, everything exists for Him. That includes you. You exist for Christ. He is the head of the church. That is, He's the founder and leader of the church. He's the firstborn of the dead. In His resurrection, we see His supremacy over the new creation. He works to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth by the blood of His cross. Nothing escapes his personhood as creator. He made everything. He holds it all together. He inherits it all. And nothing escapes his work on the cross. All things in heaven and on earth are being reconciled by the blood of the cross. That is not some sort of universalistic that everyone is saved, but all things means all types of things are going to be in the new creation. Every distinction and category you have in this creation will be redeemed by Christ in the new creation. This is Christ. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the head of all authority. He is God in the flesh. And He will have what He has died for. And that is a new redeemed world and a new redeemed people. Building on that foundation, Paul says, you are a part of that. You, who were hostile in mind, who did evil things, He has saved. In Him, you are now, as Paul says, above reproach. You are forgiven. You are a part of a new creation that is broken into this world. Therefore, be stable and steadfast in your faith. Build your life upon the rock that is Jesus Christ. Everything else is sinking sand. And so we must make this point painfully clear that when we talk like this, this is not just religious truth. This is not just truth for Sunday morning. This is not just truth for within your family. This is the Christianity makes the claim that it is true to what is there. It is true to reality. And when it says Christ made everything, Christ holds everything together, Christ is going to get everything, everything exists for Him, He's redeeming everything, it means everything. Every sphere of life is Christ. Everything was made for Him. The famous uh, Christian theologian from about 100 years ago, G.K. Chesterton, put it this way. He saw the uh, gathering secular clouds on the horizon. A cosmic philosophy is not constrict or constructed to fit a man, a singular man. A cosmic philosophy is constructed to fit a cosmos. A man can no more possess a private religion than he can possess a private sun and a private moon. You can't just say, well, Jesus is my Savior, He's my Lord, but He's not the Lord of the universe. He can't, 
You just can't do it. He is the Lord of everything. And if we say Jesus is God, which we do, that should impact everything. To put it another way, religion is never, never merely private. And no one until about 150 years ago thought that way. It's a really modern and silly idea. This glorious Christ who is over all, that is the driving force that powers the rest of this letter. It was the heart of Paul's ministry. It was the heart of the message that he preached. And it was the one that transformed the world. Our Protestant forefathers got that. And I think they would often scratch their heads at what passes as deep theological thinking today and what passes as faithfulness. Where did you get that idea? Not from the Bible. Paul moves into the next section, 124 through 25. The mission of the church is to declare this Jesus Christ. The preeminent Christ is the foundation, and it is Paul's job and the job of every faithful church to declare who this Jesus is, this vision of Christ. Look at verses 28 through 29. Him we proclaim, that Jesus we just talked about, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that, that he powerfully works within me. The message of the church is to declare who this Jesus is and what he has done. And we do that to present people as mature in Christ. And the interesting thing here is, this is we're going to make you mature in Christ by declaring this Christ, but also Paul says, it's that Christ who's empowering me to do this. Like, he's not leaving this up to chance. He's going to get what he wants. Christ is the Lord of all. And this Christ, this vision of who Jesus is, is the basis for maturity in the faith. Right? If you want to grow in your faith, you have to know that Jesus is Lord over everything. If you've got areas in your life where you say, well, I'm a Christian here, but over here Jesus has nothing to say to me, then you're immature. You're not going to be presented to God as mature in Christ. And I feel, or I know, that that's one of the reasons why American Christianity is so utterly immature. They don't preach this Jesus. And so Paul makes the point plain. As the church in Colossae, just like us, faces false teachers, how do you combat false teaching? Well, you point to Christ. Colossians 2, 3 and 4. Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. How do you protect yourself? How do you protect the church? How do you protect the family from false teaching? Well, you get a big picture of Jesus and you keep coming back to it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it says here that Christ the Lord is the embodiment of that wisdom. That all wisdom and all knowledge is hidden in Christ. That doesn't mean you have to go digging for it. It's rather that God has placed it in Jesus Christ. Just like back then, we have our fair share of false teaching today. Whether it be the prosperity gospel or critical race theory. And we have these things in the church because we want a Jesus who only died for our sins, but who isn't the source of all wisdom and knowledge. We want a Jesus who only died on the cross, but didn't rise again in victory as the Lord of the universe. 
We don't want all of Christ for all of life. And so we invite in false ideologies of the world, hoping that they might fill in the gaps where Jesus has left gaps. He didn't. And at the root, this is an unbelieving heart. It's an exchanging of the glory of God the Son for something less. He is our source of wisdom, and there is no better place to go. Without Christ, we have no foundation. This should be self-evident at this point. But as we descend into what can only be described as utter cultural insanity, where we can't even agree on what a woman is, we can't agree that truth exists, we can't agree what is good and what is evil, even things like math are now being labeled as oppressive, we literally have a movement known as furries, where people identify as animals, and feel totally justified doing that and get likes on it online. Transhumanism. This is this. This, though, should not surprise you if you're paying attention because for over 150 years we've been telling people that they are just animals, that they just came from a bunch of monkeys. Don't act surprised when they live that way. When you see the cultural rot and the insanity of our time, what you are seeing is that God is running what is often called a reductio ad absurdum. As he's reducing your views to the absurdity that they are. We can't know anything if there is no God. Honest philosophers admit that. That is what you're witnessing in our culture. We've rejected God and now we don't even know what anything is. You just get to determine it for yourself. All wisdom and knowledge is hidden in Christ. You can't make sense of the world without him. People have been trying for thousands of years. This is where we've gotten to. You simply cannot do it. Why? Because Christ created the world. Christ sustains the world. The world exists for Christ. He died for the world. And he's going to have it all. This is his world. You just live in it. Good luck making sense of it without him. Paul then moves into the largest section of his letter where he gives the Colossians and us a view of how do we live in light of this big picture of Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 6 through 4, 1. But this big section is divided up into lots of little sections where we see Christ's lordship over different areas of life. First, he instructs the Christians to not get taken captive by hollow, deceptive, and worldly philosophy. That is, rather, worldly ideologies, especially the ones that blend some Christian truth with error. The cure to all of this is found in two verses, or two, uh, verse 9 and 10. For in him, that's Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Again, how do you protect yourself? Be filled with this Jesus who is the head of all rule and authority. Don't limit the scope of his influence. Actively recognize his comprehensive reign over life. Of course, this is applied to us based upon his death, his resurrection, where he pays for our sins and overthrows our enemies. Verses 11 through 15. Now by grace and through faith, we are united to Christ. And this is the parallel in the passage. This Christ has the fullness of deity dwelling in him and he is filling you. The fullness of God dwells in Christ and He is filling you so that you will be kept 
And so Paul encourages us to not listen to those who tell us that this creation made by Christ is no good. It can sound Christian, but it's not. Looking at the end here of chapter 2. Those who make up rules, Paul calls it asceticism. Who say, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Implying that the created world itself is the problem instead of the human heart. Paul says that this is the doctrine of demons elsewhere. He addresses these ideologies, asceticism, eating and handling of food, and then he instructs us to focus on the things that are above. As I said when we covered this passage, if you don't read this carefully, it looks like Paul is schizophrenic. It looks like he's contradicting himself in his own argument. What are the things that are above that we are supposed to think on? What are the things on earth that we are not to think on? We'll look at chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What is earthly? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. In other words, the word earthly is a figure of speech meaning living sinfully. Don't live that way. Rather, live knowing that Christ is Lord over everything. That that means you have to conduct yourself a certain way. Conversely, the things that are above is Christ in His universal reign. Paul applies this as he explains the inner life of the Christian and how it is then to submit to Christ's authority. Why do we sin? Why do Christians who say Jesus is Lord over everything, I'm a new creation, why do we still struggle with sin? Because you have sinful desires and you have an old nature. Christ has bought a new nature for us and in some ways you have been raised to Christ in new life. But Paul says in chapter 3, it is your job, believer, to put to death the old nature with its sinful habits and to put on, like you put on new clothing every day, the new self that Christ has bought for you. Christ has given you a new you, a new way to live. The fancy theological term for this is sanctification. That you are called to grow degree by degree in holiness. But you can't do that if Christ hasn't done something first. We are called to give Christ and His work primacy in our thinking, in our feeling, and in our choosing. Recognizing that Christ is in us and we are in Him. But Christ's Lordship doesn't end with just how you think and how you feel and how you choose. But it also should impact your relationships. Verses 12-14 through 14, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Knowing Christ is the Lord of everything, knowing that He has a claim on your life, means that you should interact with people in such a way that love shows, that forbearance shows, that forgiveness is commonplace. I was having a discussion with a congregant a few weeks ago. And as he put it to me, he goes, Christians aren't really taught to repent anymore. We just assume repentance. But as a Christian, repentance should be a normal thing, not just to God, but to one another. Husband and wife, 
if you haven't repented to one another in a while and actually said you're sorry without saying, well, if you wouldn't have done this, then I wouldn't have done this. That may be true, but you're still responsible for what you did. That should be commonplace within Christian relationships. Repenting of your sins, owning it, and then forgiving. I think one of the reasons why we don't repent is because the other side is often slow to forgive. And that is a sign of unbelief. Paul offers two summary statements here in chapter 3 about the all-encompassing nature of Christ and how it should impact our lives. Look closely at verse 11. He says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Your identities, the things that the world wants you to make so much of and to build your entire life upon, right? I'm rich, I'm white, I'm black, I'm, I'm smart, I'm not smart. Those all take a back seat in the church. Christ is all and Christ is in all. That great Christ defines all of our identity if we are united to Him by grace through faith. We all have one Savior in one Lord. Nothing, no race or social status, ethnicity can upstage Christ as your identity. And so to do so, if you try to do so, as some pastors try to tell their people it's okay to do, you are actually denying Christ's work. Paul says here, none of those things matter because Christ is all and he's in all, and we want to say, well, yeah, they do matter. Christ doesn't matter as much. Be careful with that. Like sometimes we get in these arguments and you... And you within the church, you're like, are we just making a mountain out of a molehill? No. This is Christ's work. Don't attack it. Everything, or then the second summary statement he makes, verse 17. And Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Everything you do, whether in word or deed, whether in thinking or choosing, actions or words, is to be done under the name of the Lord Jesus. Hope you, I know I'm being repetitive here, but Paul's being repetitive. This all, everything, everyone, all, Lord, 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 over everything. He applies this truth then to family and work. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Servants, obey your masters. But there's this radical shift that Paul is doing here. That the father, so in this culture, the father would have been a mini-god. There were no, no instructions given to him. He could do whatever he wanted. And Paul says, well, that's not the way it really works. The father's role, the husband's role comes from God and he is accountable to God. He has obligations to both serve and to love. He will be judged for whether he behaves righteously or unrighteously. While there is neither slave nor free in Christ, we still live in a world where things like that exist. But the statuses are flattened out before God. Everyone may be distinct, but they are still equal. And so Paul instructs this obedience, not as if someone is better than someone else, but he says again and again in this passage, do these things unto the Lord. Verses 23 through 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, 
knowing that the Lord will receive or you will receive the inheritance as your reward for you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul upends the structures of Rome and human ideas of who's better and says God alone is on top. The Lord is on top and God will judge both master and slave. He will judge both husband and wife, parents and children, and he will judge them all by the same standard. To make that stakes painfully clear, he says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In the ancient world, the master was unquestionable, but Paul says that's not true. God will judge the master without preference or without favoritism. Today, we go in the other direction. We make excuses for those we label as oppressed, and we demand that we judge them by a different standard. But God shows no favoritism. His justice is impartial, and he will judge according to one standard. And so we see the universal lordship of Christ over our family, over work. There is no cage that can hold Jesus. That moves us into our last section. Watching and waiting for the kingdom. The last section of the book. There is this eschatological, that is, waiting for the end, watchfulness that Paul instructs here. That Christ is our Lord over the past, the present, and the future. He created everything. He upholds everything. He lives with us presently, but he also says, I'm coming back. In a sense, the kingdom, which is the new creation, the final defeat of evil is achieved, has already, right now, broken into this world. Because Christ has risen again. Christ's people live here. You are, in part, a new creation. You are evidence that Jesus is coming back. The church is an outpost of the new creation. So every time you see repentance and faith, every time you see or offer or experience forgiveness, every time you see that degree by degree increase in holiness in your families, in your churches, you are seeing a taste of that new kingdom. The new creation, Christ's kingdom, is glimpsed in those moments. But the fullness of it is not yet here. There is still much to be done. Many dragons to be killed. And we are called to go and do just that. To recognize Christ's reign and to pray steadfastly and to do so watchfully, waiting for the coming of our Lord. That, brothers and sisters, is the book of Colossians in a nutshell. A gift from God to His church. In it, we are pushed to see a really big picture of our Savior. That He is the creator of everything, the sustainer of everything, the inheritor of everything, and the redeemer of all things. This is His universe. And literally, we see Christ's Lordship in this book in the areas of theology, civic life, church life, your thinking, your feeling, your choosing, your interpersonal relationships, your marriages, Knowledge, wisdom, ideologies, economics, prayer, your past, your present, and your future. Paul covers all of life in this letter. This is the Christ we are to proclaim. The head of all authority, the one who owns all things, 
and the one who is coming back for everything. That is what we mean here at Christ Bible Church by glorifying God, by bringing all of Christ to all of life. A big picture of Jesus and a big picture of this world under his reign. That is the picture our Protestant forefathers declared. It's the picture Paul declared. It's the picture that changed his life. It's the picture we should be laboring towards. It is what God has given us in Scripture. Christ is all and in all. And now we go back to that beginning question. What would possibly motivate these guys to sign up for Paul's ministry? This. We are told in a million different ways today that if you want to have a good life, then you have to seek yourself. We are told in a million different ways today that the greatest good you can find is your own self-fulfillment in your own truth, but we've never been so desperately depressed and sick and just plain flat out ugly, if we're being honest. And Christ comes in here and he says, if you want to gain your life, you have to lose it. If you want to find your life, you have to give it away. The gospel of Jesus Christ is worth it. But you can't combine it with the nonsense of our day. And so that's what I want to leave you with this morning. As we will close in song, celebrate some baptisms, is that the gospel of Christ is all-encompassing and it's worth it. You will not find your life. You will not keep it without him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us the book of Colossians. We thank you that in its pages we see a marvelous picture of your son, of who he is and what he has done. Lord, may we leave this morning with a greater appreciation of the person and the work of Christ. May our hearts yearn for Christ, all of Christ for all of life. May they look forward in anticipation to the coming of his kingdom. And may that power sustain us in whatever trials and tribulations and blessings that await us in the days, weeks, months, and years ahead. May Christ Bible Church be a place where this Christ is declared and where this Christ is lived out. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.